My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Kate Curtis. Until this spring, each school in the Toronto District School Board, the largest school board in Canada, had its own dress code, developed within a framework provided by the board. The preamble of that framework indicated that dress codes had to abide by relevant human rights documents, and it asked each school to do two things. To define appropriate clothing, and to ban gang-affiliated clothing. The dress codes at different schools varied a great deal in their approach and content, yet students in Toronto reported experiences quite similar to students across North America. Dress codes and how they are enforced often lead to a wide range of discrimination and barriers. Overwhelmingly in how they are written and how they get applied, dress codes are sexist. Most of them disproportionately target girls, often shaming them for their bodies and mobilizing the victim-blaming rhetoric of rape culture. They often get used in ways that target students on queer and trans spectrums for how they do gender, particularly those who are feminine. They also get used against racialized students. Black and Indigenous youth are particularly likely to have their modes of dress read as threatening or inappropriate, and in the Toronto case, the ban on so-called gang-affiliated clothing often just boiled down to targeting black streetwear. Overall, dress codes create circumstances in which certain students get surveilled and regulated, often along axes on which they're already marginalized, and they force teachers to step out of their pedagogical role and into the role of doing that surveillance and enforcement. For at least some students who already face barriers, dress codes can make school environments more hostile, and they can disrupt learning. Kate Curtis is a high school teacher in the Toronto District School Board. She's also one of the co-founders of an organization called the End Dress Codes Collective. The collective emerged in part from the Status of Women Committee of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation Local in Toronto, as well as from a student activist group called Project Slut. In 2015, the latter won a multi-year campaign to get rid of the dress code at Central Tech High School, and a couple of the youth in the group were keen to take that victory board-wide. Uh, and for listeners who are interested, you can search online for a 2015 episode of Talking Radical Radio about Project Slut. The collective started out with an educational focus, to raise awareness about the discriminatory nature of dress codes. They did lots of presentations and workshops, they also prepared a guide based on the victory at Central Tech for people wanting to challenge dress codes in other schools. Over time, they became more involved in advocacy aimed at getting the Toronto District School Board to change their policy around dress codes. A pivotal moment came when the collective had the opportunity to present to the board's main governance and policy committee, which helped prompt a formal review of the existing dress code policy. The collective continued its education and advocacy work and actively intervened in the board's consultation process. And in the spring of 2019, the board passed a new student dress policy that represents a major victory for the collective and for the many others who have organized against discriminatory school dress codes in Toronto. The new policy is clear, 
uniform, and focused on what such a policy actually needs to do while avoiding the discriminatory aspects found in most dress codes. Curtis thinks it's a vast improvement, but the real test will be how students experience it once it's rolled out in September. The Collective intends to keep a close watch and to intervene when necessary with advocacy and support for students. As well, Curtis hopes, they'll be able to begin the work of sharing the lessons from the victory in Toronto with students, parents, and teachers who are challenging discriminatory dress codes in jurisdictions across the country. I talk with Curtis about the problems with dress codes, about the work of the End Dress Codes Collective, and about the details of the new student dress policy that they and others won from the Toronto District School Board. My name is Kate Curtis. I'm a high school teacher with the Toronto District School Board. I've been teaching in the board for the past eight years, and I am one of the co-founders of an organization called the End Dress Codes Collective, which sort of founded as an educational collective to teach people about the discriminatory nature of dress codes, and then through that work became an advocacy organization to lobby the board to change the dress codes in the TDSB so that they could eliminate those forms of discrimination that existed within the codes. I've been doing activist work, being involved in politics and organizing since university. And then when I became a teacher, I started bringing those issues into my classroom and teaching about them and then began to sort of notice the ways in which board policies on a broader level were creating barriers for particular students to be in the classroom, to learn, to feel safe, to feel accepted. One of the most well-known barriers that we see is the way that a lot of dress codes across North America do a lot of work to shame girls and to control what girls can and cannot wear. The language in different dress codes can talk about the amount of skin revealed, the exposure of any sort of like undergarments, particularly like bra straps, midriffs, lengths of skirts. And those codes end up being disproportionately felt by female students and femme-presenting students, so queer kids that wear more feminine clothing, gender non-binary kids. And that's how the code operates in a sexist way. And then the other concerns that we were beginning to also see, I mean, I already mentioned it, but this way to control gender. So yeah, non-binary kids or femboys would also experience coding through this homophobic way of controlling genderqueer bodies. And then the other very concerning part that I think is talked about much less, but is very prevalent in dress codes is the way that they disproportionately impact the lives of students of color and particularly black students and indigenous students. We saw codes in the TDSB target black streetwear. So often the terminology of gang affiliated clothing would be used and the logic of safety would be used to not allow kids to wear pretty standard pieces of clothing like hats, do-rags, hoodies, even jackets aren't allowed in some classrooms. And then on top of that, the way that the intersections of sexism and racism were playing out. Research shows that Black girls face the highest rates of disciplinary action when it comes to coding because they're right at this intersection of being both seen as threatening and also over-sexualized. And so they're constantly being coded in this like in-between space by both of those discriminatory ways that the dress code works. And broadly, the issue that we had was that what it ends up doing for the teacher is creating this conflict 
about, you know, the amount of bra strap showing or, you know, if a kid's wearing a do-rag, then your job as part of enforcing the code of conduct becomes about telling kids what to wear and how to wear it instead of teaching them. As a classroom teacher, there are students sometimes where you're glad that they're in the room, you're glad that they're engaging. And so then to begin this conflict with them about a particular piece of clothing that really isn't impacting anyone's ability in the classroom to learn became very concerning. I've you know, been doing this work for five years and people hear about it and they're like, well, it's a big deal. You know, like, how is this really impacting the classroom in a major way? But to see it operate on a daily basis, you can see how much it does impact particular students who walk down the hall and are constantly being watched and surveilled and told to correct themselves. And teenagers and young kids, I mean, this is all the way from kindergarten to grade 12, have very little control over like where they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to do and how they spend their time. And so I think a big push for us is to say this is their body and their choice. And so the school does not need to be intervening and making those choices for them. And teachers have a lot better things to do than code students when they could just be making them feel safe and comfortable and removing those barriers they can learn in the classroom. It's really hard for some students, those who are particularly targeted. One thing that I found very surprising, a lot of girls in high school will say things like, you know, I don't get coded that much anymore in high school or it sometimes happens, but it was a lot worse in elementary school. There are stories of girls in grade four, five and six where their very first experience being sexualized or being told that their body was too sexy happened in a confrontation with a teacher or an administrator. You know, they're just wearing something that their mom bought them and they were told to cover up. And that has a tremendous impact. And I think it's really important for when we're talking about dress codes to think about the ways that sexism and victim blaming and racial profiling are not just being recreated in them, but are being taught to a new generation of kids by the schooling system. Dress codes are as old as Canada as a country. And even before that, residential schools had a policy of dress coding. They you know, would remove Indigenous children from their families and then force them into clothing that was seen as European and more civilized, including hair being changed and cut. So it has had a tremendous impact on our schooling system. It's a big part of our schooling system for centuries. And then on top of that, I think like Black students, racialized students who are walking down the hall and being watched and being told to take off pieces of clothing that have cultural significance to them and importance to them are very much made to feel like it's not a space for them. And on top of all of those things, we also have to think about the kids who may not be experiencing coding, but they're watching this happen and they're learning from it. And so they're either learning from what they see to control themselves and what they wear, things they might want to put clothing on at school, but they don't feel comfortable because they're worried about getting coded. Or what it can also do is teach kids those systems of discrimination to then use with each other that question of like, what are we teaching students and how are we teaching students to see themselves and their own bodies and feel comfortable in them? And then also how to treat each other. Some of the school dress codes before the new one came in would use language like students had to dress in a way that showed they respected themselves, that they would not be a distraction to other students. And this is language right out of a victim-blaming, slut-shaming narrative that was directly in these dress codes. How did the old policy governing dress codes at the Toronto District School Board work? Before this policy, there was a policy called P042. 
is called the Appropriate Dress Code Policy. And it was a umbrella policy that directed each school to write their own. So every school in the TDSB had its own dress code policy. It had a sort of preamble about how each policy would have to be in line with the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It would have to be in line with the Ontario Human Rights Code and with the equity policies of the board. And then it had two specific things that each dress code needed to define. The first was to define appropriate clothing. There wasn't any guidance in the overview policy. And then the second thing was that each dress code had to ban gang-affiliated clothing. And that was it. And so each school would then go and write their own policy. And so some dress codes would be two pages long and it would be like incredibly specific about what could and could not be worn. Some would be a paragraph, a short paragraph. The defining of appropriate clothing was often quite vague. It would say things like students must wear appropriate clothing. And for example, they may not wear revealed underwear garments or showing their midriff or skirts that were too short, etc. It was very unclear in these codes what that meant, like what is too short and what does the etc. mean. And then it would define gang-affiliated clothing often and in brackets would say things like no hats, no hoodies, no bandanas, no do-rags, etc. And that was it. Every school that you went to, it would be different. And then on top of that, every school that I've, you know, I've taught in eight different schools and I would find it really depended on the administration and the teachers in the building and just the general school culture of whether or not the dress code was widely enforced or not. And then I think it's also important to say that from talking to students, the way that coding was happening was often very public. So it would be in front of the whole class or across the hallway. And often teachers or administrators would make very moral statements about the student's choice of dress, you know, to use like names to describe their clothing. We had don't dress like a hoochie mama. There are teachers saying that to students. You're asking for the wrong attention. You're a distraction. A kid wearing a bandana was told that it looked like she was in a gang. And it was very public and it would shame the students. And there's nothing actually in the old policies that would say how enforcement should happen. How did the End Dress Codes Collective initially form? This collective kind of came out of the Status of Women Committee at the OSSTF Toronto. Uh, And that's the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation local in the city. I met one of the co-founders at meetings there and... Yeah, it was formed with myself and Caitlin Hewitt-White, who's another activist teacher in Toronto, and two students from Project Slut. They just graduated, but it was an activist project out of Central Tech, which happened over their years from grade 10 to grade 12 as students, but they won the project in 2015, the year that they graduated. And that work happened from student voice and student activism. They essentially had a huge issue with the dress code initially around the sexism, but then really broadened their issues when they started talking to students about the racism and homophobia and even like fat shaming that can happen from dress codes. You know, I didn't mention this earlier, but body size has a huge impact on whether or not clothing is seen as appropriate or not. You know, two kids can wear the same piece of clothing. And if someone has a bigger body, they're far more likely to get coded. And so they brought this really intersectional approach to their activism. And initially, the Project Slut Kids were just doing it themselves and then got connected with a teacher at the school to support them in 2015, successfully got rid of the central tech dress code. And we started working with Andy Villanueva, who is one of the activists from Central Tech. And she came to one of our workshops and talked to the students that we were presenting to about it. 
And then her and myself and Aaron Dixon, who was one of the other activists from Central Tech, we wrote a guide, which we distributed through the OSSTF Toronto Status of Women Network for teachers who wanted to support the work that these two students had done at Central Tech to begin reviewing and looking at the dress code in their school. And we used the model that the Central Tech kids had done to lay out a step-by-step process of how to do something similar in their own schools. So we did workshops for a few years and we met David Regan, who was another teacher, and he joined our collective then. And then Caitlin, David and I, with work of different parents and students, began to start meeting with school trustees. So two years ago, this spring 2017, we met with Merritt Stiles, who was a school trustee at the time. She's now an MPP. And she was really supportive of the work that we were doing. And she got us connected to other trustees. And then through that work, we were able to present to the TDSB Governance and Policy Committee with the trustees. We brought students and they talked about their experience of being coded to these school trustees. And we advocated for the committee to review the policy because we said, you know, it's not in line with the new equity framework that the TDSB is working within. They'd written this huge equity foundational statement and document about removing barriers for students, particularly girls and racialized kids and queer kids. And we were like, this is sitting right here and it's impacting kids' lives on a daily basis. And here are the kids to tell you what's happening. And bringing those students to the trustees was very impactful. I think it had a huge effect on them understanding the daily discrimination that was coming from this code. And so last spring, they decided to review the policy. And then over the past year, it had been reviewing the policy, rewriting it. They did three months of consultations. From what we've heard, it was the most consulted piece of policy policy that they'd ever had at the TDSB. Students participated far, far more than they ever had in the policy consultations. And then it was brought back to the Governance and Policy Committee. It was passed. I went to the trustee board meeting. And then this past May, the trustees passed the new dress code, voted 20 to 2 to pass it. So it was also overwhelmingly supported by the TDSB trustees. As you did this work, how were you able to connect with students in different schools? One way would be that there are really awesome conferences that happen all around the TDSB. The OSSTF Toronto Political Action Committee runs one called Action Reaction every year, which we go to regularly. There's an OIZ social justice conference that happens in the fall, and we would go to that. So any opportunity to meet with activist students was one way. Another way was social justice groups in our own schools. So David and Caitlin both in their specific schools, worked with students to do sort of more local organizing, which I think was incredibly impactful to have examples of different schools doing this on a more grassroots level allowed us to show the trustees that this is happening. It's already happening across the board and principals who are willing to take a look at it are understanding that there are huge issues with these dress codes. So that grassroots local organizing at school levels created opportunities to do the broader work. And also just organizing with teachers. So being able to go to teacher conferences and talk to teachers about it then allowed those teachers at schools that we weren't a part of to go back and look at those issues, which I know has happened at multiple schools also across the board. And as you engaged with so many different people in so many different contexts, what experiences did you have of encountering support for dress codes as they existed? Uh, I'd imagine more frequently among teachers and administrators than students. 
there's the kind of arguments in support of dress codes often have to do a lot about respectability politics, you know, teaching kids what is appropriate and not appropriate for the classroom, for the school, so that they can be you know, taken seriously or not be a distraction or whatever it might be. And I think an argument that we found often was, yeah, I understand that these codes are maybe sexist and racist, but this is a work environment and at work, you dress differently than you might in other places. And I think a thing that we really tried to talk a lot about was the fact that school isn't a work environment in the sense of like labored work, paid work. Students don't have a choice in coming to school the way that people can choose where they work. They have to be there. It's a learning environment and it's a work environment for the employees of the school, the teachers and administrators and support staff. And that was actually put in the new code that specifically that this is a learning environment. But also, I always like to say, you know, workplaces all look really different. And what people wear to work is very, very different. And so to make a blanket statement about more appropriate dress, you know, collared shirt and slacks or whatever it might be, really makes a lot of assumptions about the kind of work that people do. And Andy, who I talked about earlier, would always also say, you know, a lot of us at Central Tech, which is, you know, a technical school in downtown Toronto, a lot of us already work. We have jobs outside of school. We are able to understand the difference between school and the workplace. We have uniforms or clothing that we wear to those workplaces, and we can do that. So you're not actually teaching us what you think that you're teaching us. I thought that was also very important for teachers to hear. And people really understood that when we laid it out like that. And I think the way that the TDSB has taken this on is to say it's not for us to define what is appropriate and not appropriate beyond the small parameters they've left in the dress code and that those decisions need to be made by students and also by their families because there's also just a lot of cultural differences in what is appropriate and inappropriate, what parts of the body are sexual and what parts of the body are not. And what's in the new student dress policy from the Toronto District School Board? It's quite long. There's like a lot that starts out giving the justification and the framework for the policy, which is really to ensure that students don't face discrimination based on who they are and what they wear to school. It then defines particular clothing that students must wear, may wear, and may not wear. So students must wear opaque clothing over their nipples, groin, and buttocks. They have to wear a shirt and bottom or a dress. Underwear can be revealed to any amount, but it can't be worn as clothing. So that's what they must wear. They may wear a whole list of things that are given so their midriffs can be showing, underwear can be showing, they can wear tube tops, crop tops, they can wear bandanas and do-rags and hats and hoods as long as they're not obscuring their face. So a brimmed hat is fine as long as it's not over the face and it's just like facing straight forward and yoga pants and like things that you wouldn't even know were an issue but can be an issue, short shorts, mini skirts, all that stuff. And then it defines what students may not wear, specifically things that are in violation of the school code of conduct. So no depictions of violence, no hate speech, racism, sexism, homophobia, etc. No depictions of drugs or alcohol. And then that's pretty much it. And the only other thing that I would also add is it it really defines this specific means of enforcement. So unless a student is wearing clothing that is incredibly offensive, let's say it's in violation of the school code of conduct, hate speeches on their shirt, that needs to be dealt with in a really serious way. But if there's another sort of minor infraction that has to do more with revealing too much, then it's supposed to be dealt with as a minor incident 
that is not public. So you don't publicly disparage the kid in front of the whole class, take them aside, you have a quiet conversation, and they can't lose class time because of a dress code violation. What that means is they may be asked to go like get a shirt to cover up, but they're not supposed to, as they have been in the past, sent to the office for the class, right? As the punishment for violating the dress code is you don't get to be in class. So that can't actually be done anymore. What kinds of things is your collective going to be watching for as the policy begins to be implemented in the fall? We're going to be watching what's happening at the board level. We've been told that there will be information going home to explain the new code. So I'm going to see if that does happen. And if it doesn't, we'll be following up with them for the fall. And also looking for general professional development around this new code. So teaching teachers what it is and what it means and seeing that leadership happening from the board to do that. And then the issue of enforcement, I think we'll be connecting with our networks around the city and the teachers that we know in different schools. Some principals have already talked about this at their school and helped teachers understand what's coming down the line. Many have not. So we'll be watching to see that that's happening in the fall, that it's explicitly being talked about, that teachers are made aware of what they are not allowed to code for anymore and principals also. I think there's a tremendous amount of education that the board really should take leadership on to not just teach what the new code is, but like those fundamentals that we've been talking about, about why this is actually so important. And then I just think we'll also be doing work to keep an eye out and reach out to students to make sure that they know the new code has happened and that they know what they can do if the old code is being enforced or this new code is being enforced improperly so that they have the ability to advocate for themselves and seek support if they're being coded under the old policy. It's written in the policy that if a student writes under the new policy are violated, their means of recourse is to put in writing what happened and submit it to the principal. And if nothing comes of that, or, you know, it's the principal perhaps that is coding them inappropriately, that they put it in writing and send it to the superintendent. I have concerns about that being adequate and also accessible for students. And so I think that we need to also be aware of that accessibility in student voice and ensuring that students are able to come forward and feel empowered to do so. Listeners in Toronto whose students or they themselves experience coding in violation of this new dress code can also just get in touch with us and we can begin to do that work of advocating on behalf of those students or supporting those students. And also, I know this is going out across Canada, so I would also be very interested to hear from other folks around the country who want to do this kind of work and want more information about how we did it and want copies of the code to bring this into school boards across the country. This is really exciting that we could get this win, but these codes are still operating all across North America. And I think that we have an opportunity to really shift what those codes are doing and how they can actually fundamentally change the relationship of students to the school. You have been listening to my interview with Kate Curtis of the End Dress Codes Collective. To learn more about their work, go to enddresscodes.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists published by Fernwood Publishing. 
Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. 